Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Happy Confident Company, who provide clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programs to help your pupils thrive in only 10 minutes a day. Visit www.happyconfident.com to find out more. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio with a special interview with Tom Bennett, um, who's very kindly agreed to give up some of his time this morning to talk all things behaviour. Um, Tom, how are you doing today? I'm living the dream just now. I'm not sure. Am I supposed to look? Am I supposed to sit like this? Or can I just look straight at the camera? I don't know. Can I, do I track the interviewer? I don't know. What do you want me to do? Uh, I That is completely up to you. I'm completely happy for you to do whatever you want. Um, I, I thought we'd, I mean, I thought we'd start with um, Slant, because obviously it has been very much under the discussion. Um, it's been Slant Week. I know, it's great. Yeah, very much under the discussion. Um, just for people who don't know what slant is it's a strategy from teach like a champion um which is a set of <laughs> strategies authored by doug Lamov, um and slant is one of those strategies so um to- and, and you can google it you can find out yourself what it is and we won't go we won't spend five minutes talking about what it is let's just get straight into yeah. slant because in a recent interview on teachers talk radio um phil beadle um intimated that slant could be quote a precursor to a version of fascism i wondered whether you had any response to that particular concern yeah you know i mean <laughs> lots of things are a precursor to fascism the fall of the weimar republic is a precursor to fascism um I, okay so i'm gonna start with slant more generally i think i think slant is an extremely useful technique for teachers to use. And I, th- and I think that the the fuss that is often made about it is, is, is extraordinary because every teacher needs some kind of technique to gather the attention of their class, right? Attention is very much what we're in the business of. Focus, motivation, and attention, and hard work. Um, and because of that, if children are doing an activity, when you want them to transition from one activity to the next, it is essential that you get some kind of some kind of cue to say that everybody look at me. Now, if you teach absolutely, you know, perfect angels of children, if you teach nothing but the sons and daughters of Swiss diplomats, then you can just say, right, everyone attend, and, and they jolly well will, right? And that's maybe a lot of people's experience. Um, but it wasn't my experience as a teacher. I know that it's not the experience of a lot of people that you've got to work at it. And one of the best ways you work at it is by is by habituating children into understanding that when you give a certain cue, you know, and it could be like the famous hands up from ARC, or it could be ringing a wee bell, or you could be clap, clap, clapping, or you could play it's Chico time in the background, you know, you be you, but there needs to be a cue. And then there's a behavior you want the children to perform. And that behavior normally consists of, look at me. <laughs> I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation. You know, stop what you're doing, put your pen down. Maybe I used to say four on the floor. You know, four chair legs on the floor. Uh, close your books, pen down, look at me. You know, stop talking. And that way you make it absolutely clear what the expectation is. That's not, that's not draconian. And to say that's a precursor to fascism. I mean, I've got a degree in political philosophy, which makes me essentially unemployable. But I do know, <laughs> I do know the types of things that tend to be precursors to fascism. And, you know, getting children to look at you in the classroom is probably not one of them. Do, I mean, certainly within Slant, I think the most sort of controversial bits are this idea of like nodding like you know nodding is part of it it's almost like sort of the demand for for children to follow a a set of compulsory prompts that, that that don't add any value that don't don't mean anything you know what i mean and and i suppose another one would be the tracking is a common complaint with that would be that there are students in the class who either they don't want to track and that should be okay or they can't track because uh, and therefore we should enact reasonable adjustments for those students you know there's certain elements of slant that that are controversial 
I think a lot of people get confused between the slant strategy and what is actionable by law. Right? I want to be quite clear about it here. And I've met Doug many, many times. He's a good friend of mine. Um, he's a giant of a man in the field, but also literally he's about 42 feet tall. He's extraordinary. Um, he only does training in barns. He, and one of the things that he frequently says over and over and over again is that none of this is compulsory. All of this are serving suggestions. All of these things are things that, you know, we suggest you might want to try as a teacher. And if you're going to do them, do them, which means you've got to insist upon them. But there's lots and lots of things to, to recommend the whole slant process. So, for example, I mean, there are different versions of gathering attention. I, I told you before, mine was look at the front, pens down, close your books, four on the floor, turn face forward. That was my gathering activity. You can have a million others. But if you want, for instance, to insist that kids look at the teacher, I don't think that's a bad thing to ask, given that and when you look at something, you tend to pay more attention to it. Now, if there are children who literally physically cannot look at a human being's eyes, and that might be an expression, for example, of some kind of profound level of neurological uh, disorder. Then, then schools are legally and morally about, obliged to make reasonable accommodations for, for such circumstances, right? And in my experience, they universally do. And I've never ever seen a school which has, you know, made, for instance, a child, a child with ASD, you know, made them look stare into the eyes of, of somebody. It's more just a general principle of you've got to be looking at the teacher. And that's what you insist upon. And where the child is capable of doing so, they should do it. And I don't think that's a particularly horrible thing to ask of anyone, quite frankly. Do you think that, I mean, obviously you just mentioned that that Doug Lamoff himself, which I'm sure, you know, I've interviewed him and I'm pretty sure he said sort of similar was, you know, it's a framework. It's, yeah. you know, it's something that you can like pick bits from or dip in and out of. But yeah. the way it is, you know, would would you therefore say that, a school that says, look, we all must use slant, you know, as a sort of non-negotiable for staff. And they say, look, this is part of our policy. You must do this and you must use S-L-A-N-T in, in whenever you are, you know, after a transition or whatever. Yeah. Would, would you say that's a, a, okay with that in mind? Or would you sort of guard against that? No, not at all. I mean, it's absolutely fine. To have clear blanket universal rules, as long as those rules have reasonable accommodations built into them for exceptional circumstances. So let me give you an example. You know, in the UK, the rule is that you drive on the left-hand side of the road, right? That is non-negotiable. You don't get you don't get to suddenly think, you know what, I'm gonna to drive to Birmingham on the right-hand side this time. However, you are allowed to, for instance, overtake when it's safe. That's one. Number two, your uh, police officers or emergency vehicles are in certain circumstances allowed to drive on the right-hand side. When you are turning right, you can cross the right-hand You know, there are set circumstances in which exceptions are allowed. And it's the same with any kind of behavioral rule in school. So if you've got a rule that says, you know, we use slant, that's absolutely fine. And if there are students who, for instance, for some reason, literally neurologically cannot do so, then we can make exceptions for them. But those exceptions must be A, exceptional, and B, commonly understood and properly taught to all members of staff and communicated to the student community. And that way, nobody thinks, oh my God, there are no rules here anymore. They just think, okay, there's a reasonable exception being made here. I mean, an obvious example would be if somebody was was a, was a paraplegic, if somebody can walk. And um, you know, nobody would expect them to take part in able-bodied athletics or, or certain forms of able-bodied athletics. You know, we understand there's a reasonable accommodation and exception being made. And if we just track, if you'll pardon the, the pun, track that back onto less visible uh, difficulties and things like ASD and, and ADHD and SEMH and so on, that we can understand that we can still make exceptions for exceptional circumstances, but they must be very boutique for the child. Remember, SEND does not equal bad behaviour and bad behaviour does not equal SEND. What would you say to those teachers who say that, number one, it's this is too much, it's too much of a straitjacket for us, and number two, we've and this is just this isn't just slant this is the whole repertoire you know uh, sort of some of the things i've seen written about tlac saying we've always done these things we, we've always we've always had have, have we now we, we've always had you know um like calls to attention for example you know you, you, you are, are we are we creating new phraseology for things that teachers have either always done or are doing and then someone comes and says do this right. and they're already doing it but they're not doing it in that 
particular way. I'll tell you what Doug was a groundbreaker in. It was a groundbreaker in putting names to things that teachers did already, right? Because behaviour instruction and behaviour management skills for teachers was up until relatively near history, was just barely taught, certainly not in a systematic and guaranteed way, that you might be lucky to go through a process whereby you, um, where you're inducted into, you know, really clear calm behaviour systems and so on. But a lot of teachers, and I mean a lot of teachers out there, myself included, were inducted into a profession whereby you were given no skills whatsoever and you were just told to get on with it and good luck, which is pretty suboptimal. And what Doug did was just so, so simple. He went to really, really effective classroom teachers' rooms and he watched what they were doing and he gave that a name. And he noticed that a lot of them were doing a lot of similar things. You know, and, and then he said, look, here are some things you can try and use. And none of them, none of them are mandatory. None of them are legally obliged. You know, all of them are just things that, we, that, that, that he suggests the teachers should think about trying to use more or less or to adapt into their own, their own context. So this idea of giving a name is a powerful thing, not a bad thing. And what I find interesting is that critics of these techniques, they say, I mean, they're normally, <clears throat> if I may say so, fairly irrational. And they normally veer from either saying, oh, we've always done this, to it's monstrous to do this. And I kind of feel like saying, well, which, <laughs> which one is it? Have we always done it or is it terrible to do? You know, and asking for children's attention in a certain way or a set way. I mean, I know some, I know some teachers that get their children's attention by, you know, putting fingers on the lips or hands on their head or hands in the air or doing or making a little praying noise or, you know, or, or putting on an animal mask or something. You know, anything is a cue. Question is, what do you want them to do when the cue happens? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, there are, as I said, you know, just to sort of finish off, because we could talk for longer on this, but, you know, we've got loads of other things. Yeah, let's talk about for 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, we could talk for I'm a very, long time on this. I'm, very but... happy. I'm, a, I'm a big, big fan of his work, and his work was seminal in, in my work. Do, do you think that, you know, there is that sort of element of people have used that phrase coercive control? They, they've used the phrase you know, that it is um, yeah. controlling children in an unhealthy way. Yeah. yeah. Adults. Well, uh, first, of all, first of all, can I say that controlling someone in an unhealthy way is always bad, but then that's because you've defined it as unhealthy. Um, but the fact that we have to have authority over children is so mind-glaringly obvious that it staggers me that an, a grown adult can, can face the world and openly say that that's not the case, that we should allow children complete autonomy. And then people will say, oh, we, we don't mean children should have complete autonomy. In which case I say, oh, well, fine then. So we both agree that we need to have some level of control over children and that we just differ about where that line is drawn. Children, <laughs> children must be governed. Children must be led, they must be protected, they must be guided. They must have experiences which scaffold their emergent maturity until they reach an age of independence and cognition and so on. Now, obviously, this isn't a, a, a hard line. This is a kind of a sliding scale, which is why with children, we give them increasing increments. Is that tautology? Increasing increments of independence, but we also give them the skills to cope with those increments of independence, right? That is what parents do. It's very similar to what good teachers do, but of course, it's not identical. And the idea that control is innately or, or, or intrinsically coercive, is absurd because I mean I've got a wee boy he's seven years old he's the love of my life and he would chase a squirrel across the M25 if I didn't stop him you know and I've got a, a lovely girl who's nine uh Gabby and, and and you know if you asked her what she wants for a breakfast she'd probably say a marshmallow pizza right you know <laughs> which, which maybe I do sometimes but <laughs> I don't do every day and sometimes she wants to stay up late and sometimes we say yes and sometimes we say no but the point is we make the decision and children need to have that sense of 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 of, um, of boundaries around about them, and if you don't give children boundaries, then you're basically saying do as you please. And I hope you're really good. I mean, good luck with that. Have you ever met a bloody child? Right? Children are wonderful, but they don't automatically make the right decisions. In fact, most adults I know don't make the right decisions. Uh, sorry, I wasn't pointing at you there, Tom. I'm sure you've got <laughs> <laughs> all the terrible ones. Um, you know, we've all screwed up. Right? And we all do things which are silly and irrational and emotional and so on. Children do it a lot because they don't know that much about the world because they've still got emergent personalities and characters. So if you say to people, here are some rules, but don't worry, children, they're optional. 
Now, don't be surprised if your classroom is extraordinarily unsafe, unkind, unjust, and undignified. And there certainly won't be much learning going on because that's the experience of many people in classrooms like that. And it's bad enough for the teacher. You think it's bad for us? It's 10 times worse for the child who has to endure it. Whose learning has been savaged by this chaos that emerges around about them. Whose whose safety is 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 subject to the, the to the you know the, the the predatory actions of crueler people around about them. If you allow children to run themselves for extended periods of time, don't be surprised if you devolve into a slight kind of Lord of the Flies scenario. Children need boundaries and they need them to be set with love. And we don't. And here's the thing: we don't manage the behaviour just by punishments. We teach them these boundaries. We teach them what to do, not just what not to do. We teach them what to do. We teach them the standards and we, we treat it like a pedagogy. We treat it like something that they can learn. And if they make a mistake, sometimes we just reteach it. Sometimes we remind them. Sometimes we say, oh, you made a mistake there. And sometimes we use sanctions. But let's not forget, behavior management is 90% persuade, 90% persuasion, but it's 10% compulsion. You cannot take away the compulsive element. So I have no problem whatsoever with admitting that in schools, that we compel them to behave in the right way. But we don't just compel them. We also try to persuade, scaffold and support them to do so. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready to go, wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. There is that line, though, that even though I'm sure many people would agree with a lot of what you've just said, there will be those who say that we, that we take it too far in terms of, you know, for example, silent corridors you know, or a detention straight away if somebody yeah. does whatever. You know, there's people who, who would say, yeah, you know, control. You know, there, it, there'll be those maybe at one end who would say, look, we, we don't agree with that at all, actually, Tom. And, you know, we, we don't agree that control should be any part of it. But then there'll be those a little bit further along who say, oh, yeah, OK, 10% control, 90% persuasion. Mm. But then they probably look at something like silent corridors and say that's beyond the ten percent. That's like right. Too fine, far. fine. I've got to say a lot of this is, <laughs> as the dude would say, it's just a matter of opinion, man. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've like MC Hammer. I've been around the world, right? I've been to about seven hundred and fifty schools around the world, right? And I only look at the behaviour systems. And that doesn't make me any better than anyone else. It doesn't make me better than you or anybody else listening to this. I'm good at it. I'm hopefully I'm bloody good at it, but I'm no better than many people here, particularly the ones that are still actually doing the job, right? You're worth 10 of me, but I have seen a lot of schools. And, and what I've found is, well, there's a number of things I've found. One of the things is this, is that schools can be brilliant in lots of different ways. Schools can be very, very different and still be flourishing and successful. And as long as they're calm, safe and dignified, those are the three main key things for me. So you can have silent corridors or you can not have silent corridors. You can walk on the left or not bother about it. You can have uniforms or no uniforms. You know, it's, be you. Be the best version of yourself. The key thing is, are the kids, is the environment calm, safe and dignified? And are they learning because of that? And, I mean, I went to the, I went to the, uh, I went to the cinema a couple of weeks ago. I went to see Super Mario Brothers. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a masterpiece. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not a mass. It's okay. Though, right? <laughs> now, now, even for a children's matinee, most people sat there for about two and a half hours in complete silence, apart from the odd kind of whisper here and there. And I sat there for two and a half hours in complete silence, apart from, you know, telling my children to stop dropping ketchup on, on, on the floors. And, you know, I didn't think, oh, what a privation that was. Last Saturday, I took my children to uh, the Dunfermline Carnegie Library. And we sat there in the library for about 45 minutes just reading books quietly, you know, because because that's how we roll in the family, Bennett. And of course, they were all reading Latin and Arabic and Gaelic, you know, because they're so, so incredibly advanced. I'm kidding. Um, my point is, there's lots of periods of time when you're quiet. <laughs> I watched a film last night with my wife. We were both quiet for about an hour and a half. And I didn't think, oh, my God, this is so oppressive. We did it because we knew it was suitable for the environment that we were in, because we had highly mature skills. So I don't really find... Asking kids I mean, there's those who say there's those who would say with those examples there's a reason for those as in you're in the cinema there's a movie on or you're in the library and you're there yeah. to read books 
Whereas right. as I used to say with like silent corridors, there isn't a reason to have silence in the corridors. Really? Oh, really? Mr. Tom Rogers. Um, well, number one, what if you've got a school with split timetables and half the classes are in class while kids are having a break? That's number one. Number two, there will always be kids who walk, walk in between uh, you know, various activities and, and support and so on during lessons. Are they allowed to chat loudly while classes are going on? Number two, what about when there's an exam or an assessment going on? Lots of classes are them. Um, number three, what about if your school already experiences, number three, number four, what if your school <laughs> has, yeah, sorry, has lots of really poor behavior in the corridors? What if the corridors are kind of chaotic, slightly feral? And what you're trying to do is you're trying to turn the corridors from a place of chaos to a place of purpose. Now, the schools I know that use silent corridors, I'll tell you one thing, <laughs> the kids do not mess about. They go to the lessons really, really quickly. Now, there was, a, there was a study by the London School of Economics in 2015 that suggested on average, children could lose up to one hour per day through, you know, scrappy starts and late endings and weak transitions and a bit of misbehavior. You know, and you can claw some of that back. I mean, you look at some of the schools like, you know, Dixon's Trinity and McHale and so on. You see these schools and they absolutely maximize their school day. I'm not saying, this is the thing, I'm not saying schools have to do this. But I believe in plurality. I believe in freedom. Aha, freedom. The freedom of schools to choose the type of school they want to be. And I'm happy if one school allows quiet chat, another school allows noisy chat, another school insists on silent corridors. What matters is, is the school safe, calm and dignified? And all these people that say, oh, you mustn't have silent corridors are actually, oddly enough, inadvertently saying, I insist that you do things the way I want it to be done, which is a kind of an odd inversion of this idea of agency and freedom and autonomy that they seem to, they seem to advocate. What's your view? Because there's been, I mean, there always are, like, regular stories in the press about uniform and about um, sort of things like yeah. appearance and uniform, let's call it you know, like haircuts, uh, you know, people people being, you know, sent home for this haircut uh, or this hairstyle, people being suspended for it, people, uh, you know, parents complaining because, um, you know, uh, child A has been sent home because they had the wrong colour pants on or whatever. Um, Hello? <laughs> that's, that's a very strange uniform expectation, but carry on, Tom. <laughs> um, do, do you... Do you think that, I suppose my wider question is, there's two questions there. Is it a question? <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking of the best way to phrase it. Is part A, have uniform expectations in some schools gone too far? Part B, has parent power gone too far? Oh, wow. Okay, so that was a big, that was a big preamble with two very different questions. Um, yeah, okay, two very different right. questions linked to maybe the same issue. Right, here's, a, okay, here's the deal. Uniform's an interesting one. See, when you have, when you when you observe the public debate, the discourse about behaviour, it tends to almost exclusively revolve around four or five topics. It's either uniforms, you know, the 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 the, the, the pictures you get in the local press in September of glum-looking parents and glum-looking children who have been sent home because you know Billy wasn't allowed to wear his Power Rangers hat, uh, you know, and they're just sitting there. And the mum says, "My little Billy just wants to learn," you know, and Billy looks like that. Um, you get those kind of stories. Then you get stories about mobile phones, and then you get stories about exclusions, right? Um, and th th that tends to be the main ones. And whenever the Sunday Times calls up for a quote, that's all they ever want to talk about. Um, so the level of discourse is sometimes a wee bit embryonic when it comes to discussing behaviour. But then that's because a lot, I may say, so a lot of people in schools have been trained a lot in behaviour, and they might be good at it despite their training. So that's part of the, the thing you're talking about there. When it comes to uniforms in general, I've looked at the evidence for uniforms. You know, what, what, what are the, what's the evidence base for having them or for not having them? And I'm going to be quite frank, the evidence is pretty thin either way about the efficacy of using a uniform. That's not to say that they can't be useful or that maybe if you have a school, you might want a uniform. In fact, I would argue that for sheer expediency's sake, it's really important to have some form of uniform. Even if you have a dress code, that's a uniform. You know, it might be something, you know, you're not allowed to come in wearing a bikini or something like that. You know, I don't think that's unreasonable for, for a classroom, especially in Scotland. Um, and so once we've accepted that it's okay for the school to make some kind of uniform requirements, we then have to ask, well, what are the other levers that we're using here? I think that uniforms can be really, really useful levers to achieve certain things. For example, a communal identity, a sense of belonging, which for many children is not a small thing. Certainly if children feel dislocated or unhappy in their own lives, school might be their arc. They might be actually be quite proud 
to be in a community that seems to look after them and care about them and where they can be successful. And they might quite like a sign which represents that. Number two, if your school's got gang issues, then very frequently you'll find that gangs will, will you know, wear certain clothes to represent who they are and which level of affiliation they are and so on. Now, this is something I encountered in lots of schools in the East End of London. So in that case, that's when you do really have to stipulate things like, you know, no track lines or no, you know, no gang signs and stuff like that. No gang colours. Wear your uniform a certain way. Uniforms are also a great leveller because no matter what uh, socioeconomic rank you come from, if you can get the uniform, then you look the same as the person next to you. I may I just say this is why I massively endorse the cheapest possible uniforms, um, you know, where the school maybe hands out badges that get ironed on or something like that. You know, it shouldn't, there shouldn't be a financial barrier to children's occupancy of that community space. So I think there's lots of good reasons to have a uniform. It can also teach children to be smart. It means that, it means that you can set a really clear expectation of how it should be worn to be smart. Because a lot of children will come in, you know, you know, with tracky with you know dirty trackies or or ripped up shoes. And you hear a lot of people say, well, what what difference does that make to how they learn? Well, it makes no direct difference to it, but then schools aren't just about um making sure kids get good grades, are they? Which is something that many people often advocate. Schools are much more than that, they're about developing a sense of community, which can be done in other ways, but it can also be done using a uniform, which is why I don't think uniforms should be nationally mandatory. I think schools well, should I have- gonna, I was gonna, I was, I was gonna ask you, you know, if you were in, in, in charge of sort of that element of things across the country and someone said to you, look, Tom, you've got to choose, you've got to choose either mandatory, un mandatory uniform for all schools, or yeah. we go to a, an American style system or wherever, where there is no requirement for any sort of uniform. Yes, you can have your own dress code or whatever you want, but there's no requirement for uniforms across the board. Well, if you have to choose one of those two, what would yeah. you go for? Uh, this is like the trolley problem, isn't it? Um, I, would, I, would, uh, I, I would rather fight a duck-sized horse than a hundred horse-sized ducks. No, um, I think that, I think that um, to be honest, the answer is fairly obvious to me there. I would say there has to be some kind of level of mandatory uniform because at least if you say there's got to be a level of mandatory uniform, then schools can themselves decide what it means by uniform. And that seems that seems pretty autonomous and pluralistic to me. But if you say to if you say to a school you don't have to have any kind of uniform, then kids will come in wearing inappropriate clothes. They'll come in uh, boasting of the expensive stuff that they have. There will be status competitions. There will be tribalism and so on. Whereas uniforms are the great leveler there. Your first and foremost identity in the school is as a human being and a learner. And those two identities are very, very important in the community. Let's move on a little bit to, um, th there's been a lot of conversations in the last few months, if not the last few years, about the um, lack of funding and provision for SEND students, and particularly for um, those with uh, diagnosis of um, well, I mean, I could I could probably list about five or ten actually there of of, of students who um, are classified as send and are not given the provision within schools that that many people would believe they're not, um, yeah. and also not given the reasonable adjustments, not given the resources, not given the time, not given, and so on, and. Mm. I wondered, and 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 also there has been an increase in, uh, you know, students with um, reported as send or, or reported as having mental health challenges mm. or concerns. What is your view on that? Uh, you know, do you think we need to change tack in terms of the way we are approaching? And I'm picking behaviour as one element of a lot of things. Yeah, do, yeah, sure. Do you think that is a reason or a cause for us to reassess how we are approaching behaviour? Yeah, I think, I mean, SCND is an, is an enormous area. Um, God, there's so much I could say with that. God, God, you know, God bless you and your open questions. Um, so the first thing I would say is that, is that there is definitely a national deficit in high quality destinations for post-school provision or alternative provision. That there are some crews in AP, there are some specialist schools and behaviour schools that are doing the Lord's work, right? There's some brilliant places out there, but there's not enough of them and there's not enough places. And there are some areas in the UK where there are deserts of such provision. That absolutely needs to be tackled. Sadly, there is not an enormous constituency to tackle this. The political will is frequently not there 
because it's one of these it's one of these things that can often be sidelined for what appears to be more you know more prominent issues in schools but it's an incredibly important issue and i do agree with that um i don't know what the correct level of funding is um but we need we definitely need more of it the second thing i would say is this is that SEND currently occupies somewhat of a kind of a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a wild west scenario out there in that there are children out there who are not getting the diagnosis they need and that there are children out there whose diagnoses may be on less robust terms now you only have to look at the panorama program from last night to look at the relative ease which with with which some people can obtain diagnoses which will then help them to obtain resources within schools although these people may be within normal spectrum human behavior and circumstances so there's definitely an issue there I think there's an issue within schools to suspect that whenever a child misbehaves, they must have a form of SEND, which is absolute nonsense. Human beings misbehave. Do you think that happens a lot? Do you, a, do, you, do you think that's happening a lot? I, I, I think that a lot of people in education, when they see misbehavior, they think, what's the SEND here? Right? And I think that it's useful to consider that as a possibility but it's not useful to immediately jump to the assumption that there must be an SEND here. I mean, we're not, we can all do things which are silly or selfish or mean or cruel or careless. You know, we, none of us are perfect, apart from obviously you, Tom. And <laughs> we think that the same happens with children because children are people too. And, and so when a child misbehaves even repeatedly, they may just have poor habits. You know, they might just think school is shit. You know? <laughs> or they might, they might not enjoy school because they find it difficult. Or they might have, or they may be racist. You know, there, there, are, there are perfectly unpleasant reasons why kids misbehave too. And you can't just explain it away by saying, hmm, there's a special needs here. No, sometimes people have just got, just got bad habits and, and, and they behave badly because it appeals to them. And a lot of our behavior is intentional. And I think pathologizing all misbehavior does an extreme disservice, not just to children with SEND, but to all children, because it dehumanizes them and reduces their dignity. So I think, think there's an issue with that as well. And I think that a lot of schools make the mistake of treating misbehavior as a pathology, as if, well, they're misbehaving, so there must be something wrong with them, so we have to supply something for them. And it might be that what they need, their needs might well be boundaries. Their needs might be that sometimes they need to be reprimanded, or their needs might be they need to be reminded, or their needs might be they need more scaffolding. There's lots of different ways you can respond to misbehavior, but the assumption that a therapeutic response is the most appropriate um, is not always the case. In fact, it can often lead to disaster when schools try to adopt it as a whole school model. Do you think there's a problem? I mean, this sort of dwells into, I guess, curriculum as well as behaviour and lots of other areas, but do you think there's a problem with, like, not... I mean, it's the age-old question of the personalisation of learning. It's the age-old age sort of, you know, question. But this idea that we still have the the sort of you know uh, 30 children in a classroom sat in rows and we're going through a set of instructions or or yeah. methodologies i know you're going to love this tom i know i can see it on your face but yes, let me ask it we're going through a, a set of methodologies that were that were that that are too um rigid for uh the majority of students in in classrooms um and we should be looking for ways to personalize learning experiences more and to create more pathways with the curriculum for mm. uh for different students to take you know there are many people out there who would say our curriculum model at the moment is far too narrow far too traditional in the tr in the sense that the subjects within it that we're targeting are the traditional subjects and actually the world's changed and you know uh we we need to we need to change it we need to do something yeah. radical to to uh, you know there are those who would say the reason why there is problems with behavior and so on is because students aren't engaged anymore with mm -hmm. learning and they aren't engaged with what they're being taught and they aren't engaged with the way they're being taught it Mm -hmm. Happily, that's all bollocks, obviously. Um, <laughs> that's my professional opinion. Um, and you can quote me on that. Um, right, okay, where do I start? 
The idea, I mean, you've, you've again, your question's touching about 40 different things. I'll try to hit 20. Yeah. Number Sorry. one, no, it's fine. It's got, that's what conversation is. Um, number one, curriculum. The idea that we need to personalize the curriculum for every student's experience is, is so ludicrous, I can't even begin to, to I'm, I'm literally shaking, as they say on Twitter, when I hear that kind of thing. Um, the idea that curriculum is outdated. I'm not saying curriculums don't need to refresh occasionally, you need to think about the topics and so on. But the traditional kind of uh, liberal humanist model of science, history, maths, English, you know, and, and so on, with some exercise and some music and some art, is something that there are about 20,000 20, schools in the UK and they all bend over backwards to deliver this extraordinary breadth of human experience. And, and to my mind, they all do a stalwart job of it with varying degrees of success, but they all try. And that has an extraordinary exposure to the wealth and the breadth of human experience. I don't know a single child that doesn't need science, doesn't need numbers, doesn't need literacy, doesn't need exposure to literature, doesn't need exposure to, to science and to exercise. These are all fundamentals to what it means to be a participant, not just in a democracy, but in society in general. And they're fundamental to the dignity of a human being. Or to put it another way, if you want to stop teaching science, well, good luck with that when it comes to COVID denialism and climate change denialism and so on. Good luck with that. If you want to stop teaching literature, you know, good, good luck when people stop understanding how to express themselves in complex and nuanced ways, because that's what you'll get. So, so I'm an, a staunch advocate of the liberal humanist uh, curriculum model, um, although it can obviously be refreshed and updated. The idea that it has to be immediately relevant to a child's life is bonkers. I don't want, I don't want what I teach a child to be dictated by who they are. I want to bring the universe to them. I want to open up their mind so they can travel through the whole world in my classroom. And then that requires me exposing them to things they're not sure about or unfamiliar with. Good, good, that's my job done. But if I want to, for instance, if I, if I get embarrassed about my topic and I think, well, you know, I'm going to teach Shakespeare, but Shakespeare is really boring for these kids. So I'm going to teach it through rap or some nonsense like that. Then, then don't be surprised if kids don't think it's particularly valuable. Because what you're basically saying to them is, the only thing I want to expose you to are things you're already comfortable with. What a lot of nonsense. And what an indignity to, 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 to perform upon a child. So there's that. I'm trying to think what else you were talking about. Yes, personalizing the learning experience. We just can't do that. You know, if everybody had a private tutor, maybe we could do that. I'll tell you what I'd love to see is every child getting high-quality formative feedback on everything they do. Can I spot right? in there, Tom? I saw a video, actually, by, by, by Sal Khan, um, who is the creator of Khan Academy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've seen, he did a TED Talk. Um, I may have seen that, yes. It was last week about um, chat GPT becoming almost like a personal tutor for every child. There's capacity yeah. for AI to replicate the role of a tutor um you know whether it be an academic tutor whether it be a mentor whether it be you know asking for advice on student finance whatever there's capacity for ai to potentially become yeah. what, what you just said yeah can you say people like the can academy um are very very fond of saying that the things that they sell are the answer to everybody's problems i mean fancy that um so number one what that completely ignores is that someone like Can, Can, someone like Can, is themselves the recipient of an extremely traditional educational system, right? They've done well, and now they want to pull the ladder up from everybody else. Because when you put an average child in front of a, a monitor and say, here's the work, there definitely is opportunity and scope for some kind of AI interface there. Absolutely. There's loads of computer programs that kids can use which are really useful to be done in class, or even as homework. Absolutely fine with that but you will always need a relational component to that. Because if you put a really, really drilled, well-disciplined child in front of a computer and say, do your, pardon me, do your homework, then that child will do the homework and do their best and try and think about it and so on. But if that child is your average child and you know has average levels of motivation and the television's on and they don't fancy doing the work anyway, they might just not do it or they may not understand it because you need that human sense of motivation that sense of engagement how are you doing and congratulations and that's really good people don't give a damn if your computer says well done to you unless you're particularly lonely um so teaching is always a dialogic and interpersonal activity you can augment and supplement it with some impersonal ai but you cannot replace it and it is foolish to try to do otherwise yeah i mean i, I don't know 
I don't know whether he was saying, certainly I don't know if he was saying replace it, and I, I totally get what he's saying about his plan. People like him say it all the time, particularly people in the tech industry. Yeah, the, the, I mean, I'm just wondering just in general, I mean, how do you feel about the chat GPT sort of phenomenon? Because there is a lot of teachers and, and sort of teachers using it to help them plan lessons yeah. or to come up with ideas for lessons. And, and I've used it myself in my lesson planning in the last yeah. few months. I'm not um, even I mean, here. Really, say again, Tom. I'm not even here. I'm just AI. Okay, here's what I think, <laughs> yeah. here's what I think yeah. about integrating chat GTP. Um, I think, I think like any tool, like a hammer, it offers enormous opportunities and enormous dangers. You know, the hammer can hit you in the head and it can also put a few nails in. So it depends, it depends what you do with it. depends on how you use it. And I think that, interesting enough, one of the things that ChatGTP shows us is that it's even more essential to get back to the in-person, standardised, timed exam as the, as the, uh, the, the gold standard in assessment. Because you need to have students demonstrating in real-time circumstances, which are completely controlled and anonymized and standardized and marked externally, how you know how well they performed and what they've learned and so on. And the while there are definitely benefits to other options and so on, all of them are less fair. You know, things like coursework and in-class assessment and so on, all of them are subject to these privations. There are universities right now who are terrified because their students are handing in final essays, which are you know 90% chat GTP, and it's really, really hard to discern if they are or if they aren't. Now, fortunately for I mean, for instance, I've tried that a wee bit with behavior. I've, I've typed it, for instance, check this out. I once typed in, what are, the, um, what are the critical arguments against restorative processes and skills, right? Because, you know, that's very much my jam. And I typed it in, and I said, give me a thousand words. And it gave me like 500 words on some of the things that people said were problematic with restorative processes. But then it spent the next 500 words telling me how brilliant they were and that all teachers should be using them. And I thought, I smell a rat here. This, this, this computer couldn't teach a challenging class to save their life. You know, it's still got limitations and maybe it'll get beyond that. But right now, it's still very much garbage in, garbage out. It will get there probably though. I mean, that was a good little riff actually into restorative because that was one of my, one of my things. Oh, perfect. You should is, be a radio DJ. Oh, wait a minute, you are. Is, is with, with restorative, I mean, there are, I know that NASUWT have, have come out in the last year and said, you know, we, we are concerned. We have concerns about restorative practice. I think it was actually in Scotland that that particular concern was, yeah. was raised. Um, but on paper, surely we could look at it and go, restorative practice as a concept isn't a bad idea. I don't know what people do. I, I, I don't really care what it says on paper. You know, I'd much rather care what it does in the classroom. Um, now, anybody that knows my processes, my model of behavior management, will know that I'm not just about punish and exclude. You know, but people who don't bother to read what I say often think, oh, he's he's a zero tolerance punish and exclude guy, you know, which is tiresome. But then as somebody once said, you know, everything has already been said, but because nobody is listening, you have to keep repeating yourself. Um, now, when it comes to the sort, sort of processes, you've got to remember, restorative practice, I mean, it's kind of an ancient thing. It's been practiced by indigenous cultures for, for, for you know, for thousands of years. Um, you know, people claim it comes from Maori culture and so on. But that's not the modern version that we use here today. The contemporary version of restorative practice comes from the penal system, uh, which emerged in the, kind of the 60s and 70s, which was then shanghai into the school system. These are not the same systems. And anyone that thinks otherwise, um, I've got a gate to sell, I've got a bridge to sell you. Um, the start of processes rests on the premise that all misbehavior can be addressed by having a conversation with a student and by encouraging them to understand the impact of their actions on themselves upon others, encouraging them to see what they should be doing better and, and, to, and, and, to, think, and, to, and to make some kind of restorative relationship with the people that they've wounded or injured. Right? Sounds lovely. I don't care if it sounds lovely. It's, it's rubbish. It very rarely works at the kind of scale and model that people are trying to talk about. It's a useful tool for some circumstances and situations. For instance, when you're trying to restore a relationship between two people that have fallen out, it's a useful mediation process. And I'm all for mediation. But number one, don't forget that coming from the prison system, it already comes from a penal based system with lots of sanctions and punishments. And number two, what people try to do is they try to use restorative processes to replace all other processes. 
Now you've got a classroom and somebody somebody shouts, this lesson's bollocks, Mr. Rogers, as I'm sure never happened to you, um, and then chucks a pen at you. What, are you supposed to restore it out? Are you supposed to chat it out right there and then? It's completely impractical in a challenging classroom on a minute by minute basis. It's not bad as a supplementary tool to use, but it mustn't replace, for instance, other supportive mechanisms like, for example, sanctions. It can be used alongside sanctions, but not to replace it. Do you think it is replacing it in, in a lot of schools? I mean, it must yeah. be if an ASUWT is coming out and saying I, it is. I go to lots and lots of schools. I go to a lot of, it's all I do. So I go to schools and I look at the behavior systems. There are a lot of schools, there are very few schools that don't use any form of sanction, but it's not absurdly extreme like that. But what you yeah. tend to find in schools that the majority of the processes are restorative. You know, the, the staff will say, we are restorative, um, the, the leaders will say, we are a restorative school. Staff are expected to use restorative processes as a first instance. And so, you know, the kids will have to come back at the end of the day for a restorative chat. Now, check this out. It tends to be the same kids who would have normally have attended detentions. Number two, they learn very, very quickly what to say to get out of the conversation. Number three, there's a very strong sense that they've gotten away with it. A lot of kids just go, well, that was easy. You know, nothing, nothing happened to me. There's no suspension coming out of this. There's no fear that anything I don't want to happen is going to happen to me. And unfortunately, you do need to have those sanctioning principles and process. Sorry, processes in place. Otherwise, you're going to lose all sense of security or safety in the school. There has never been a school which has demonstrated a whole school model of restorative practice which works in anything more than an even remotely challenging environment. I've never seen it. N equals zero. It is a unicorn, right? What I have seen are an enormous number of schools, and I've visited them, and, I, and you read about them easily. You can just Google it if you want. Schools which have fallen apart because they've tried to deal with challenging behaviour through an entirely therapeutic and conversational process. What a load of nonsense. If you can show me not just a school environment, but any environment where that model has consistently worked, I would be, I would be more celebratory. But I'm not. And it's, it's too urgent a thing to, to be quiet about. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. I like the radio would love Teachers Talk Radio would love to hear from someone watching this who works in school where it's a whole school systemic. I mean, what you just said, restorative practice across the school used as, I mean, are you saying used as the primary yeah. uh, sort of instrument and you're saying you haven't seen a school where that works as the, as the thing. I'm, I'm seeing a single school. Now, caveat here, if you've got a very, very, very small school, and I mean like, you know, 100 kids or something like that, if you've got very, very young children, you may be able to get behind those types of processes. Like, to be fair, I've seen, I've heard people say, and I've seen people tweet this, that in APs, for example, a restorative system Maybe yeah. there's a smaller but, number of students in an AP. But here's the thing about AP, right? Can you say there's good APs and bad yeah. APs? Every good AP I've seen uses good restorative processes, but it's a tool amongst everything else teaching behavior, supporting the behavior, pastoral techniques, sanctions, reprimands, rewards. They throw the kitchen sink at it and they've got the staff ratios to make it work. When you've got one teacher and three kids in a class and you've got a, a pastoral team of 15 members of staff, that's a different kettle of fish. When you're in a mainstream environment, it's completely different from that scenario. And also, if you teach children who are already incredibly biddable, if you don't teach in a high-challenging school, if you teach nothing but, for instance, uh, you know, for example, an independent school in Belgium, for example, if you teach in a situation like that, you might find that kids are very, very biddable because they already have, they're brimming with social skills and the values which make them compliant to the almost unspoken norms of that environment. If you're teaching children who are struggling, that's a very, very different kettle of fish. I mean, I have to say from my personal experience, uh, and this is not teacher talk radio, it's just me, I agree with that because I taught at a British international school in Spain, um, which was absolutely amazing. And, you know, and and I've also taught in schools in in high levels of deprivation in city areas in, in the UK where it's just a different kettle of fish. I mean, do, do you think we have that real problem of, of sort of people recognising context within our... System. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's there are some. I mean, listen, one of the things that I always start with when I'm doing behavioural training is that a lot of our behaviour is enormously um, empowered or supplied by socio-economic demographics. 
which doesn't mean poor equals badly behaved and rich equals well behaved. None of that. What it means is... So I think that's, that could be damaging as well, right? That sort right. of... Well, social economic circumstances correlates with risk factors, you know, like poverty and so on, which then lead to other risk factors, which then lead to other problems in, in school and so on. You know, you can be the poorest kid in school and still be brilliant. It's not that, but it's just about risk factors. And one of the things is that a lot of people don't recognise that. They don't recognise that it's very, very different teaching in, you know, La Rose in Switzerland versus teaching in Grange Hill because you've got a completely different clientele in terms of motivation, in terms of their ability to focus, their existing skill base, their knowledge, you know, their foundational knowledge and so on. So we cannot compare like with like in that respect. And I see a lot of people who say things like, oh, but your sort of practice really works. It works in my school. And then you look at the school and the behaviour is chaotic, but people have kind of learned to put up with that and they think, yeah, but we're doing our best. And, you know, and, and ultimately what matters is that we're having these conversations with children, but the school is unsafe or the results are in the toilet, you know? And that's a very, very different kettle of fish. And I'm still amazed by a number of people that say, oh, it still works. But when you visit the school, it's, 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 just, a, it's just appalling. It's the type of environment you wouldn't send your own child to. There's uh, the report by NAS, UWT, ah, yes, yes, them. In, in April, said that one in 10 um, teachers have been physically assaulted in, in the last year in their sort yeah. of survey and their questionnaire. The would you are uh, I mean, do we need do you think that what do you think needs to happen on a practical level to address this issue? Right. Number one, I just want to offer some kudos to the NESUWT, both the English and the Scottish national and the Scottish branches. Um, and I spoke at the, the Scottish branches conference last week in Aberdeen. Um, as being one of the unions that really, really looked the square in the eye and represented their members and said, this is an enormous problem for you. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting that they are probably the sole one to really focus on that, as opposed to, for example, you know, uh, the problems in the West Bank and so on. Um, and, I, and I'm really interested in, in unions that do that. And I, and I celebrate them for doing it. Um, one of the things I found out when I was writing Creating a Culture, which was a report I wrote for the DFE in 2017, was that, when you looked, historically, when you looked at what Ofsted were saying and what, you know, some people in charge were saying, the behaviour in schools was like, you know, at Sir Alan Steer said the behaviour in schools, 80% was good or better. Hooray, you know, nothing to worry about. But when you asked people on the ground, people who actually had to deal with the behaviour, they frequently reported much, much higher rates of misbehaviour than people who, for example, in charge of schools. It doesn't mean they're dishonest. It just means that that's not the world they were facing. I call it the two schools theory. You can be in the same school, but experience a very different school. So there's been a big, it's a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the first step is acknowledging you have a problem. And I think that education didn't acknowledge I had a problem for a long, long time. And I was banging my little drum for long enough until eventually I started to get some kind of platform within the DFE. And I'll say one thing, this is one of the things they've got right over the past seven or eight years. I mean, I would say that obviously, is they've really started to look at behavior as a thing to address. Now, the way that we address it, some of the work I'm really proud to say has been done We've rewritten the behaviour guidance for schools to make it clear that schools are expected to create safe and calm environments, that this is non-negotiable. We've made it clear, for instance, that they can exclude if they need to, but obviously it's not the first resort, but it's something that we sometimes have to do for the safety and well-being of students and staff. We've emphasised the need to teach the behaviour curriculum. We've emphasised the need to, to, to make sure that consequences are, are predictable and robust and that exceptions are made in exceptional circumstances. We've made this all clear. And I think the behaviour guidance is very useful. We've created the Behaviour Hubs programme, which uh, pairs up schools on a journey with schools who are already really, really high-functioning cultures. And it's been enormously successful. And the schools have enormously reported how well they've done on this programme. Hopefully, we should get some data on that fairly soon. Um, the early career framework has been changed. I had some input into that, to rewriting the, 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 the behaviour part of it. Things like the, the MPQHs have been rewritten to include me in that. I'm involved in the Institute of Teaching. There's lots of things going on where behaviour has been foregrounded. I think that there's still a lot of work to be done to, to persuade people's hearts and minds, but the, but the key thing to tackle, teacher training and leadership training, because there are loads of brilliant people working in the ITT sector, loads of them, but not enough of them are where they need to be in terms of behaviour. Lots of them are, and I just want to you know, salute my comrades and colleagues who are there, but a lot of them, particularly historically, de-emphasize behavior as a thing to learn on your course. The idea was that you'd pick up as you went along. 
which is the worst way to learn anything. And if you were a leader, it was very easy, I say easy, but it was very easy to become a leader and have had no training whatsoever in the institutional management of behavior, which is madness when it's so important in a school. So hopefully we've started to change the ship on that a little bit. And we're seeing that the discourse is brilliant now. You go on Twitter and people are arguing about this stuff now. They're not happy to, just to say, well, if they're misbehaving, your lessons were badly planned, you know? Or if they're misbehaving, it's because of an unmet need. Or if they're misbehaving, it's because of some kind of a, something they're trying to communicate. That kind of dogma is thankfully now sinking beneath the waves and people are starting to have more mature conversations. But it's a cultural key shift. And I'll be honest, in England, we're quite far ahead with it now. And you look at Scotland, which is where I am right now, and it's the land of my birth and I love it. But the, the government in Scotland is, is, is wrecking havoc with the behaviour cultures in schools because they're emphasising the fact that restorative processes need to be at the foreground of all school responses, which means that schools are doing their best, but they're finding themselves unable to deal with high challenge behaviour or recidivism and repeat offenders and so on. And, it's, and you can see it playing out, but because nobody's gathering the data, it's very hard to show that at a national scale. But I tell you, every school I go into reports these kind of issues, every single school. And when you ask people, and when you survey them, and when unions survey their members, this is what they say. So what would your, in that case, what would your sort of message be to the Scottish government in, in that case? What what would what do you want them to say or do? To um, uh, <laughs> um, I would like to say, I would like to say to the Scottish, if Nicola, Nicola Sturgeon, listen to me, Films uh, Yourself is listening. Um, I would say they need to completely reboot their education strategy because it's one of those things. Sorry, this is this is a, a reboot kind of obvious political for me. It's one of those things that was devolved. And education used to be something to be really proud of in Scotland. When we were, we used to kind of, you know, be quite puffy chested about it. But now we can't. And you only have to look at the Pirrell's results that came out today to see that you know that that that, that sadly many of our neighbours are doing a lot better than us in terms of behaviour and reading standards and literacy and so on. Um, and behaviourally speaking, every teacher needs to be trained to use norms, routines, the behaviour curriculum, and the effective use of consequences. Schools need to be told that they need to have norms, routines, and consequences. They need to have predictable consequence systems, which include pastoral approaches, but also include sanctionary approaches. Um, they need to get away from this maddening insistence that we are a zero exclusion country. What a piece of nonsense. You know, there's, all that simply means is that children who need to be sent to more specialist environments just don't get the support that they're, that they're looking for and they get retained in mainstream schools and they make life misery for everybody else so nobody wins in that environment so this fetish they have with zero exclusions is nonsense in england it's 0.06 percent which is almost nothing you know it's the lowest it's ever been and that's with the so-called exclusionary policies that, that have been advocated over the past five or six years what would your advice be to a teacher in a Scottish school like the one you've just said with with no sanctions and no way yeah. to sanction? What do, what do, what does a teacher on the ground do? Because you've what? said what you you've said what you think the government should do, but if they yeah. don't do anything, then what what's your advice to a teacher tomorrow who's in a school where this applies? Sure, it's the same advice I always give teachers, and I and I speak to a lot, I've actually been doing a lot of coaching with Scottish teachers. Um, in small group basis, and this is exactly the question that's been addressed. There's a couple of things here. Number one, if your school is chaotic and poorly run, or if your school isn't allowed to do the right things by because it's led by a system of people who themselves have never run a, managing, a challenging school, which just maddens me, the number of people who have never managed a challenging class or school but get to tell everyone else what to do in a challenging class or school, good luck with that. Take a ticket and sit down. Now, what these teachers can do, though, is... It is possible to get better behaviour, maybe not perfect behaviour, it's possible to get better behaviour even if your school is chaotic, but what it requires 10 times the effort, 10 times the experience and 10 times the wisdom. What you, For instance, what you need to do is you need to go in up to your elbows with norms and routines, teaching the behaviours you want to see, being really positive with them and saying, look, you know, I want you to be successful. The reason why we've got these rules is because I want you to be successful, I want you to succeed, I want you to learn, I want you to be safe, I want you to be treated with dignity. Stuff that really everyone wants deep down. And you will you will make some headway with some kids if you are relentless about that. And then you back it up by having standards. And it might be, for instance, that you sometimes have to make the school system work for you. So even the very worst schools will usually have an exit routine, whereby if a kid is persistently misbehaving, they get removed from the classroom. It might be something 
not particularly effective, like parking them in someone else's classroom, which is another strategy I hate. Um, but at least that's something. Then you can carry on with your classwork and then you can have a, a chat with the child at the end of the day and you can try and make it 25 minutes so it feels like a detention. You know, you, there are still things you can do, but you've got to be on the ball and you've never got to back down. And it's going to be, it's incredibly wearing, wearing, wearing. It's incredibly wearing and tiresome to do so. And I don't blame people if they say, you know what, stuff this. You know, there are better jobs out there where I don't get treated like a like, like a punching bag. But for the teachers that do persist, you can get there eventually, but sometimes it can take years and years and years of building up a rep and a relationship with these kids of the person who will get them great grades, the person that will keep them safe, because ultimately most kids kind of want that, but it takes a lot of persistence. But you can get there. It's just, it shouldn't be that hard. And even people, even people without fabulous personality should be able to do it. That's, I guess, my point. It shouldn't rely on you being charismatic and having the determinism of Oliver Cromwell. You know, it should depend on you being a regular person. Do you, do you think, I mean, just coming back to the point around the assaults of teachers, particularly yeah. that bit, um, what sh should there be a stock response to that? Should there be a generic response to that? Right. Here's Regardless. A, okay. the, answer, the answer is kind of yes with caveats, right? It's a bit like murder. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of how Scottish I sound when I say murder. Murder. Um, you know, murder's against the law, right? I don't know where you're from, but Tom, where I'm from, it's against the law. But there are still exceptions for causing someone to lose their life. So maybe an act of self-defense, an act of war, that you know, that kind of thing. Or maybe um, intolerable mental cruelty over an extended period of time or some kind of abusive situation. Or whatever, sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes You know, sometimes the sentence gets reduced and so my point is this, that even a rule like thou shall not kill has some level of exception to it, but they are, of course, exceptional. So when you come to, um, to rules in school, like, you know, is it okay to have a member of staff? I think your default should be exclude that child, right? Nobody should get punched in a school. Nobody. You do not come to school to get punched. Nobody should be expected to be punched. Now, there are all kinds of caveats surrounding that. You know, it might be that if you're in a reception class, and you know, a wee boy can attach you. Not, not, not throw that, but you know, just attach you. You might think, well, maybe that's just something we need to free teach him and so on. So that's when schools have the, should have the autonomy to make decisions on that basis. But if somebody clobbers you, pushes you over deliberately, that should be the last day you spend in that school, right? Now, people say, well, that's a bit harsh. Is it? Is it harsh? If somebody punched me in a pub, yeah, I'd call the old bill and I'd expect them to feel their collar. You know, if a student does it, they shouldn't be taught it's okay to punch people. I want an environment which is calm and safe for everyone. And I tell you what, once you have um, excluded a student for doing something so heinous, other kids get the message really quickly. This is not a school where you can punch people. Or you certainly can't punch teachers. So it all depends what you're prepared to tolerate. Because what you tolerate, you encourage. As Doug Lamov says, what you permit, you promote. Do you, do you think those do you think those figures are accurate? The one in ten physical assaults because that sounds really high. That sounds, you know, um, that sounds terrible. Right. Well, I'll be honest. Given that it's a self-reported union survey, which means that it's not going to be as as um, authentically weighted as perhaps something from YouGov or something like that, you obviously have to take that in context. I would rather than dwell on the exact percentage. I would dwell on the fact that a lot of people are reporting it. And I think that's 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 interesting, which is one of the reasons why um, we're, with the DFE, we're doing the National Behaviour Survey, which is something we're going to run on an annual basis, whereby you ask a large and weighted percentage of the teacher population and also potentially the student population what how they actually experience behaviour in school. And that's going to tell us some really, really interesting stuff. When's that coming out? Is that well, it's, well, the first round has already been done. And they're crunching the numbers right now. And they're getting ready to do the second round. So watch this space. Because I've been campaigning for this for years and years. And I'm delighted to see that it's kind of that it's in motion. And I'll tell you something else, which data that we do have. When you look at the exclusions figures, one of the things we decided to do a couple of years ago was instead of just having one reason for exclusion, people could put multiple reasons for exclusions. Um, and it used to be that the, the, the majority of exclusions were for persistent disruptive behaviour. And of course, um, advocates, anti-exclusion advocates would say, this is terrible, you're excluding children just for not having a pen, right? What a load of rubbish. They've obviously never been in a school. Um, persistent disruptive behaviour is really, really, really bad behaviour. You know what it's like. 
it's months and months and months of, of you know harrowing behavior but what we found was when we allowed people to do um you know more than one reason we found i, I can't remember the exact figures but the most recent figures said something along the lines of that the assault on staff and assault on another student like physical assaults comprised i think almost the same percentage as persistent disruptive behavior in other words the kids that were persistently disruptive in lessons also tended to be quite handy with their fists particularly against staff and other students so there's no surprise there and we've got really robust evidence there to suggest that that amongst exclusions it's a very very common reason particularly attacking a member of staff so to be clear you're, you're saying that you know the response to a physical assault which as you've already mentioned you've been through the caveats but now, if, if it is a punch, you know, someone getting punched in the face, it should be a permanent exclusion. You know, the, the, the danger is this gets... <laughs> yeah. I see you doing, you, you, you cheeky rascal. And the danger is that someone goes, oh, he just wants default zero tolerance. No, I think the default for a punch in the jaw should be an exclusion. And if it's not an exclusion, then there needs to be a why the hell not caveat. Why not? Why aren't you doing that? You know, what's going on here? And of course, when... When we wrote the exclusions guidance recently, one of the things we insisted upon was the fact that children who are looked after, children who come from extraordinarily, you know, chaotic circumstances or at risk of going into gangs and prostitution and so on, that you need to really think carefully before you exclude a child like that. And even if you choose not to, you have to then think of, well, what else can we do then to, to reduce the risk? So there are lots and lots of caveats in the rules already. It's really hard to exclude. And I think people don't realise that. They think you can just you know, click your fingers and it happens. It's really hard to exclude, which is why um, I think we need to retain and reserve the right to do so. But if you get punched in the face, I think you need to ask why not exclude them. Tom, it's, it's been a pleasure. We've been oh through so God. much. Um, we've overrun by like an hour or something. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank it's a pleasure. You very much indeed. I could, listen, I could do this all day. Um, I love talking about behaviour. And there's so much nonsense spoken out there, normally by people who don't have a lot of experience in behavior management. I think it's really important to try to represent the voice of the authentic teacher from the classroom, you know, on the public airways and at policy level. It's one of the reasons why I was delighted to be appointed behavior advisor for the DFE, because I thought, well, now's a chance for some actual kind of classroom practice in this area to be funneled rather than people who only teach in private schools and so on. Not that I'm saying anything against colleagues that do that, but it's important. And for instance, your recent blog, where you um, outlined, you know, what a day could look like for many, many teachers. I think it was fascinating to see the response to that, because what you described was essentially my, my career for the first two years, at least. And a lot of it after that, working in very, very challenging schools. And I know it's a lot of teachers' experiences. And it was extraordinary how many people came out of the woodwork to say, this is rubbish. Children aren't like this. And then you looked at their bios and you find you know, that they taught in, you know, in, in, in private schools and in, in foreign claims and stuff like that. And you just think, what do you know about this? You've got no idea. And yet here you are, a pining away, as if you've got something to say. Take a ticket and sit down. Tom. Tom, it's a pleasure. Sorry, I meant to say that. Thank you very much. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. And thanks a lot. Thanks for giving up your time. Cheers. Over and out. Adios. Behave. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.